Welcome to the Farm One Podcast, where we uncover local food stories, sustainable living, and hidden stories behind our food and agriculture system so that we can be a little bit more thoughtful about our food. Thank you so much for listening in. My name is Ina from Farm One, and today I'm with Rob and Michael. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm all right. I finally got some sleep actually. And uh, I was pretty excited yesterday because we went to the new farm space. We finally got the keys. We had a little celebratory lunch there with everybody and it was great to show everyone around. And um, it was also fun because having the, we've got these big roll up doors to the street uh, and it was fun seeing people just walk by very curious about what's going on. And we didn't give anything away, but we kind of told people, oh, there's a cool thing happening so that was super fun and I've been also just being able to meet people finally uh, because we're all vaccinated so you know I went to see a chef yesterday I saw a friend of mine at uh, Oishi Berry Uh, I saw um, we went to the Hell's Kitchen Farm project as well to do some shooting and stuff so it was just great to kind of get around the city Uh, so I'm feeling really positive about New York City reopening again. Those roll-up doors are great. It's it's such a welcoming and open sort of way to think about things, as a, you know, as opposed to just a giant brick wall and maybe a small portal into into the building. Yeah, totally. I love them, and I think we might turn one of them into a glass wall or something, depending on budget. I think that's what it's going to come down to. <laughs> going to sell more vegetables. <laughs> Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm doing well. Uh, we had a very nice and sort of chilled weekend. The weather was great. Got to spend some time outside. It wasn't too hot. Full of cicadas all over the place around here. Um, I, I didn't realize how loud these things are. It was crazy. It was like uh, 24 hours of just cicadas apparently mating. <laughs> <laughs> They almost, they, they remind me of the sound of the fire alarms when I was in elementary school and you had to evacuate the building. The cicadas are that loud that it mimics the fire alarms to me. Wow. So triggering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining today. On today's podcast, we're going to be diving deep into a topic of dairy alternatives. We're going to be talking through some news and trying to understand the interest of plant-based dairy alternatives. We're going to be talking about Oatly's massive IPO. Um, But before we dive in, uh, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and our newsletter at our website, farm.one, and you'll receive an email notification each time we have a new episode. Um, So Michael, do you want to just start off with the news of Oatly's IPO announcement? Yeah. So we've talked about Oatly, I think, quite a number of times on previous podcasts, and I'm sure people have read a ton about this IPO, um, you know, along with uh, some of the other plant-based food companies and Possible and the like that uh, went public. Oatly went public uh, last week, I think it was, at at a massive uh, $10 billion uh, valuation um, in the in in the public markets, and they ended up raising 1.4 billion dollars. All of this is off the backs of about 400 million in revenue in 2020, which you know doesn't mean that much these days. I think, 
for companies like Oatly um, that that are really sort of traded and and uh, sort of in in some ways speculated on the potential of the business and also the market. But it's it's sort of a very interesting milestone, I think, for the plant based dairy alternatives uh, market as a whole in that the obviously the investor market and the capital markets are, are responding to this um, they've done a great job with their branding and you know everyone knows that Oprah and Jay-Z are investors so I think that sort of cultural tie-in is very interesting um, and so you know it, it does sort of put put a bit of a flag i think in 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 this market to say okay this is going to be something that's here for a while uh, we've talked in the past about plant-based milks being the fastest growing sector of plant-based products it's been around for a while and probably the longest going back to soy a few years back um, and we thought we'd take this podcast to dive in a little bit deeper. Why are people so interested in this market? Why are investors so interested? And also for consumers, why has this really caught on in the way that it has? Um, and what does that mean? How should consumers be thinking about this? Uh, how should consumers be looking at plant-based alternatives? What, how's the uh, cow milk uh, industry responding? So, you know, when you kind of look at what consumers are seem to be thinking about is you know, obviously the most obvious is there are a lot of lactose intolerant people right you've got a massive market in asia that's opened up um, in china and uh, typically asians and east asians tend to be lactose intolerant um, so you know obviously that's a huge market there um, but obviously that's not the only thing in the u.s that's really caught on as well even amongst people that don't uh don't have uh, lactose intolerance. Um, there's arguments that are being made that it's healthier than cow's milk. And there's also arguments that it's made that are being made that it's more environmentally friendly as well. So um, when you look at things like oat milk, for example, it has as many calories, almost as many calories as cow milk. Uh, so on average, 130 versus 140. And then um, almond, rice, coconut, hemp, and cashew milk are lower in calories. Um, they're all lower in sugar, uh, except for oat and hazelnut, um, and all lower in protein, except for soybean, pea, and flax seeds. So, you know, just in those few data points, um, you've got sort of cow milk as the standard. And then you've got, what, half a dozen plant-based alternatives from almond to others. And then we're going to talk a little bit about macadamias as sort of this new entrance as well. So it, it, it makes for a bit of a complex place that we're in in the market. Um, and it makes for sort of an interesting collision, I think, probably over the next few years of uh, some of the best marketers in the world are going to be going after this to try to convince you that their approach is the best. And then you've got some real engineering that's coming to this uh, to solve some of the problems that you know, you're taking the juice of an oat and trying to replicate everything that's, that's resulted in thousands of years of, of uh, development around cows, cow milk. What do you, what do you guys think about, about all of this? Yeah, well, that's a lot to take in. Maybe Ina go first because you got some thoughts. I think about personally what, what you think about this whole market. Yeah, you know, I I think about my journey and you know how I started drinking plant based milks, and you know about 
maybe eight years ago, I started drinking plant-based milks because I was really focused on my health and wellness and plant-based milks matched the goals of what I was trying to achieve at that time. Um, and I, I feel like I only was drinking cow dairy milk as a child, you know, when, you know, my family was falling for the American stereotype of drinking a glass of milk with breakfast. But I think about my culture and coconut milk has been around for centuries. You know, we've been drinking plant-based milk and, or we've been using coconut milk in our recipes for the longest time. So this is something that's not new culturally. And so there's something else that's happening in this trend of consumption of plant-based milks. And it just makes me think about, you know, why are, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm really fascinated by humans' interest with dairy products. And why are humans, why are our species the only species to drink milk after infancy? And we're also the only species to drink another species' milk. And so I'm just not a fan of, you know, the drinking a glass of milk, you know, in morning, in, in the morning anymore. That's not, that's not something I'm going to do. But I do understand that you know, we've discovered, we figured out ways of using milk in other recipes, like cheese to create like ice cream. I, I love ice cream. You know, I love enjoying cheese. So I understand that there's this, you know, development in, in products and the engineering behind it. It's really a techno technological advancement really. And so the creativity to now transition to all of these products using plant-based ingredients, it's a science it's like a science experiment to figure out how to make those chemicals respond in the same way that dairy dairy does yeah my my personal story is that you know i was always lactose intolerant and kind of allergic to dairy as a child which actually meant that you know this was growing up in the 80s in the uk i ended up in a lot of situations where i was like not forced to drink milk at school, but like pretty much expected to. And I like, it was, I remember just being kind of confused why like everyone was drinking this white liquid that I knew was, was going to make me sick. But like by default, it would end up on all these tables, at, you know, lunch tables at school, or you go to someone's house and they pour you cereal. And like, it was just in so many places. And the more I've kind of looked into it, it's, it, you know, depending on who you believe, like, there's some there's some estimates that about 68% of the world's population has lactose malabsorption. So some issue with digesting lactose. That's a lot of people, you know. And then if you look at, as you mentioned, Michael, like, you know, certain uh, areas like Asia and Africa, more people have lactose malabsorption. So, um, you know, that, that average is sort of, um, you know, weighted by some of those areas. But in the United States, about 36% of people have problems absorbing lactose. And so that's it's such a high number for such a food or a food product that people have tried to sort of consider to be, you know, just normal. And then, you know, the other thing I sort of think about is that um, I was looking into this a little bit, you know, it looks like cattle were domesticated as early as about 12,000 years ago as a food source. And then, um, the earliest evidence of using domesticated cows for dairy production seems to be about 7,000, uh, sorry, about 9,000 years ago. So seventh millennial millennium BC. Um, and I think that if you sort of think through that early animal husbandry, you kind of get to this picture of like, okay, if there's a small group of people 
they might have a few dairy producing animals, you know, not necessarily cows, it could be goats, it could be sheep, it could be, you know, um, probably that's the most likely three, I think. Um, but those animals were serving really multiple purposes, right? They were like pulling a plow in a field. They were um, ending up as meat, of course, at the end of their useful life. And then meanwhile, they're developing, they're producing milk. And if you think about an animal like a goat, you know, a goat will eat almost anything. Um, so it's a pretty useful animal if you're trying to get calories into yourself in a pretty um, precarious situation, calorie-wise, if you're an early society, you're trying to get calories wherever you can get them. And so milk is pretty great in that respect. Um, and I think that it seems like in that sort of early stage, you might have maybe a small herd size so that you have like maybe 10 of these animals and a, a person can milk them in about an hour in the morning, maybe almost every day, right? And so that's gonna be a pretty efficient gathering of calories. But of course, like fast forward to 2021, we're just not, like we're not in that situation anymore. We're not desperate for calories anymore. Um, and so, you know, people's decisions about their diet are based much more on nutrition and starting to be about environmental impact. And so all these forces on us, I think are changing quite radically. And you know, I, as someone who never really drank milk as a child, like I'm obviously like super happy about this. It's such a weird industry to even exist in my view, because if everyone was like Rob, there would be no dairy industry whatsoever. Of course, not everyone is like Rob and I, I should respect that. Um, but it certainly seems like a big turning point now. And the last statistic that I think is kind of interesting to me is, is, and it's, it's really hard to quantify this, so I probably won't use any exact numbers, but if you look into the number of subsidies received by the dairy industry in the US, it's incredibly high. And there's some estimates that a lot of dairy farmers are receiving at least 40% of their revenue from some kind of government support. And if you think about that, okay, how many industries are there where like 40% of your revenue, your expected income as a business is coming from government support? It's not that many. It's not a very sustainable, like financially sustainable operation. And so that's it's really key that that's right for disruption. And so when you go back to Oatly, you think, okay, this is interesting because, you know, this is a company that's obviously succeeding and growing and having a successful IPO despite the fact that it's competing against uh, a business or an industry which is heavily supported by government. So if they're performing already all right without, while competing against a government-supported industry, that implies it's a pretty good business, you know, and it implies it's only going to get more difficult for dairy farmers as those subsidies start to erode, as they, they must. I mean, it's, they can't stay at this kind of level. So I'll hand it back maybe to you, Michael, for you to continue that. But those are some thoughts from my point of view. Well, first of all, I think you should consider um, respecting people less who aren't like Rob. Maybe just a little, like not fully disrespect, but just, you know, just a touch. That was not my intention, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that was my interpretation of his intention. Anyway, okay, so let's take on the um, cow milk and the dairy farmer industry. So... Um, Counter.org put out a report, uh, and they're an independent news organization. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you look into them, you'll find out a lot more. Anyway, point being, uh, they put out a report that said that Americans are drinking less cow milk and more plant-based alternatives. So from 2013 to 2017, which is the latest year 
uh, data is available. The number of gallons of cow milk consumed in a household per week decreased by 12.2%, while the number of gallons for plant-based alternatives such as almond and soy uh, increased by 35.7%. Now, in terms of absolute volume, cow milk still you know, towers over everything else in the world, but those are the numbers that the dairy industry and the milk industry is looking at. And coincidentally, over the last couple of weeks, the milk processor education program, MilkPep, um, that represents the uh, milk production industry, um, responded to this. So obviously, they're seeing the pressures of all of this. They're seeing sort of what's ahead. And uh, as, as sort of an industry group, you know, they're bringing together the interests of the industry. And really, they're sort of a marketing group, right? Um, responded with a gonna need milk for that campaign. Now, these are the people that were behind, if you guys remember, uh, the got milk campaign, they had the milk mustache, it was really clever, right? Culturally, it was really clever. I thought the advertising back then was phenomenal. They had some of the best advertisers in the country and in the world at the time working on this. And, and you know, it's iconic, um, that imagery, you right? So they're coming back and they launched this campaign gonna need milk for that. And, um, you know, they're really tying it to the idea that milk is the original sports drink. And if you go to the website um, for gonna need milk.com, uh, you'll see sort of their positioning and <laughs> uh, it's, it's sort of very interesting. They launched the campaign with a video that was directed by Jimmy Chin, who's an award-winning uh, documentary producer and director. Uh, you might have seen him in uh, in, in Meru and, and also Free Solo, which chronicled Alex Honnold's free climb up, uh, up El Capitan. Uh, I think he was the first person uh, to have done that, uh, done that particular route, and it was it was just phenomenal. And Jimmy Chin's sort of a bit of a hero of mine. He's um, someone I've followed his career for a while, and and he's just a phenomenal person. So obviously, getting someone like that in of that profile sort of is is quite a statement. So it, it's a really interesting response. Um, what uh, I know, what what do you think about all of this? I, you know, the, the Got Milk campaign is truly iconic and it's just such a good case study of how to do advertising in, you know, it's, it's been how, how many years was, were the God, Got Milk campaigns running? And, you know, I saw people and figures in my childhood that were representing milk. And so, you know, it was just really great to see all of the people represented there. It's interesting, you know, I, I've done a little bit of reading behind the Got Milk campaign, and it's just interesting to see, and, you know, the, the campaign really emphasized the lack of milk and the deprivation of it. And, and you know, it, it, it felt like um, for the Got Milk campaign, if I didn't have milk, I felt like I was missing out on something. So it really sold that FOMO. Um, of the gut of of milk, so I think it's really interesting. I ha I have to say the the film and the commercial was really great to see that it was a beautiful made film. But I didn't really need another commercial telling me that I needed milk because I don't think I need any more milk. Yeah, Jimmy Chin is such a heavy hitter. Um, I'm I was frankly surprised that he did this. I followed him on Instagram as well. I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of his films. I think um, Free Solo is really. Uh, a great, 
great film. I remember watching it in the cinema and this moment when Alex Honnold has to make um, a, a committed move across to another ledge and he kind of does this sort of lean and karate kick kind of thing. It's like I, the whole cinema was, uh, you know, on the edge of our seats. And, and at that moment, someone's phone went off and I've never been more know. upset about that. Um, well, because yeah, like, the sound design of that was brilliant. It was, yeah. it was just quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it puts you right there. And so and I and so I really respect his work. And so seeing him produce or direct this this piece of video for for the milk people, I don't know, it questioned it, it really made me question a lot about his decision making because um I I I can imagine there's a bunch of folks in his outdoor sports community and the wider sort of um environmental movement because you know outdoor sp sports and environmental concern is an intertwined concept now really um i think there's people who are gonna be upset with him for doing this spot um to be frank i thought it's all an all right piece as an ad i didn't think it was as interesting as his other work i think what you know what jimmy chin is really good at is you know he's a dirtbag climber like he knows the folks who do that he's good in the outdoors he's good on the top of a mountain he's places where no one can go and so this spot filming it in the middle of the city i just thought it was a bit like they just wanted this guy's name and they didn't give him enough freedom to do something really interesting that was my take on it and also i personally just think it's ridiculous the idea of someone looking at a climbing wall and then drinking a big slug of milk to go up there it's just like come on like do we believe that stuff anymore i thought it was just crazy but i mean who knows you know it could get some attention i i, I just think this narrative that milk or dairy um traditional cow's milk is somehow more powerful than a plant-based milk or something like that I, it's just i don't think there's anyone under the age of 40 who believes that anymore right like uh, you know we as consumers we have the data and we have so many options and it's just like we can't be told by an ad now that like you need a thing it makes me think of when i see that kind of advertising now it makes me think of the movie idiocracy where everyone's drinking um, this sort of equivalent of Gatorade because they keep parroting this line. It's like, oh, it's got electrolytes because that's what the body craves, you know? And it's like, I don't know. It feels, it feels like 1987 or something again to me. Yeah. Clearly I'm not yeah. convinced. Clearly I'm not convinced. Hey, you know? Well, all right. Let, let's pick up on two points there. So the advertising part was, was really interesting because um, it did feel very 80s. Now, when you think about what worked with Got Milk, right? It was, we were living in a, a media world that was television and print centric. And so your imagery from television came in the same way that, you know, I want my MTV, right? That was the thing. It was sort of, you know, the 80s, the splash. It was like, you know, 30, 60 second spots that were really funny and you had no other alternatives. These days, it's TikTok and Instagram stories, right? So it's a very different format and a very different way of telling that story. Yeah, um, and, and, and the fragmentation of media now is such that you, you cannot rely on 20 million people seeing a spot. Like, it just doesn't happen anymore. And so this 
like the got milk phrase even if it hadn't come out until now i don't think it would have got the same adoption i just don't think you would have been able to get that same um feeling where everyone's everyone's consistently watching the thing um so yeah sorry carry yeah. On. i just you know yeah and it, it is sort of it, i i think you're absolutely right and um the and then on the other side of it on print you saw a lot of athletes you saw people like michael jordan and others with the milk mustache right and you'd see that in your in your vogue and your gq and your your esquire which were the media channels of the day and then on your billboards all over the place um what's interesting is like you know i've i've spent a fair amount of time with some world class like athletes athletes in their sport that have reached the pinnacle yeah, we, we spend a lot of time together, you and me. That's what yes. you're saying, right? Okay, That's true. Yes. No disrespect to anyone who isn't, uh, who isn't Rob. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've never seen a single one of them drink milk as a sports drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that alone, that testimonial you just shared, like that is it, right? That's the counter to all of this advertising. Which I think is funny. It's sort of like, okay, so maybe you're just, you know, maybe maybe world-class athletes, I don't know, they're on a cocktail of steroids or something. So then the human version of that for normal people <laughs> is fortified milk. Plus, when you take milk, or, you know, it's one thing if you had a bunch of yaks as a Mongolian, right? And you're just like milking them and then drinking them and 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 or maybe fermenting it and getting drunk at night, which was, I think, mostly the case. But the way that we process milk nowadays, it strips it of virtually all its nutritional value. I mean, you've taken the thing that's maybe the most valuable in milk, which is fat, and just removed it entirely through these processes. So then you're like, okay, well, how do you get that back in? And then you look at the, you know, Ina and I will look at the, some of the ingredients labels of, of the, uh, some milk, uh, even plant-based products. And, you know, it's the cocktail of, of ingredients that you can't pronounce. And you've put in all of these vitamins and you've fortified the milk. So, well, then what's the point? It's just a vehicle for a bunch of supplements you can get on Vitacost. It's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? I, yeah, I agree. I have never seen any athlete drink milk as something that fuels and nourishes them and gives them energy for their competitions. And, you know, just seeing the ingredients on some of these, you know, you know, delicious riboflavin or dicalcium phosphate sounds delicious. I don't know. It's, it's just really, it's really interesting that they've had to add so many steps to the process. They have to take out all this fat and then add, add things back in to make it consumable again. It feels like a lot of unnecessary steps. I mean, it sort of speaks to the role of like the USDA and the school lunch program and the expectation that consumers, <clears throat> especially children, are going to be consuming a low diversity of specific foods in their diet. Because if you expect that, uh, I don't know, 12, 15, 17% of a child's calories each day is coming from a milk product, then as the 
as a, as the like responsible party, then you start to say like, okay, well, we better enrich this milk with substances so that we make sure these kids get their recommended daily allowance of X, Y, and Z. And then at the same time you say, okay, for this milk to be safe in an industrialized um, distribution system, then I have to, of course, pasteurize. I should also maybe try to remove X, Y, and Z. Um, and then you lay on top of that the um, collective outrage about fat that like happened during the 80s and 90s, where you then say, okay, I have to reduce the fat. And then you end up with this sort of Frankenstein product that doesn't even bear much um, resemblance to the original. And then as a legacy of that, what happens is when people produce plant-based milk, they are subject to some of the same forces. And so then they say, okay, well, yeah, I also have to um, fortify this. I have to add stabilizers. I had to have all these other things so that this thing can exist happily in an industrialized food system. And it's it's just a weird thing. You know, it's, it's weird whether it's, uh, a complex plant-based milk which has 17 ingredients or if it's a, um, a milk from a cow that has been processed and modified in such a way that it fits those kind of standards it's it's such a sort of product of modern society isn't it and that's what's I guess that's what's kind of really interesting about it as well you know you had the same sort of thing with bread where bread you know people were adding vitamin D to bread and all these other things and supposedly making it a sort of complete nutritional product. Whereas that you got in that ridiculous situation because you were not using whole, whole grains in the bread. So the bread was a nutritional blank slate onto which you could add back in a bunch of nutrients, supposedly. Oh, it just, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. And it, and then, you know, the reason the reason that you don't see athletes chugging milk is that like, you know, of course, like every athlete has a diet that works for them and, and people have different ways of going about getting their nutrition. And, and what seems to be obvious is that every like milk is just not this magical substance that gives you nutrition that you cannot get elsewhere. And also a lot of people are allergic to it. And so like, oh, it's such a crazy situation. The more you think about it, isn't it? It's so, it's so weird. How are we here? Yeah. It's 2021. We're still like doing this crazy stuff. So it's weird. the uh, entropy of the industrial food complex. <laughs> it just gets yeah, crazier is, and right? crazier. Yeah. 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 Well, okay. Let's, let's switch a little bit because out of all of this, listen, if you like your cow's milk and your cow's milk products, and you know, I think pizza uh, should have cheese on it, makes it what makes pizza delicious in my opinion um you know do it and um and i i respect the cultural choices that that people make in their food and and all of that but uh you know and of course listen the dairy industry is going to do what they're going to do and we know where that's coming from and that's you know uh, part of the greatness of the internet and some of the sadness of the internet these days too. But anyway, so let's look at sort of what lies ahead and in, in, in the plant-based side. So there was this really interesting, and we've touched on this on a previous podcast, but there was this really interesting article on uh, Food Navigator USA-USA.com. And uh, it was that cheese is the most technically challenging space in dairy alternatives. Now, this is really interesting to me um, because... Um, it begins to talk about a bunch of things here that uh, it's not just 
trying to replicate you know milk that you put in your cereal um, or that you might drink in a glass because you know obviously that's going to be a relatively maybe an easy bar but it's also the mouthfeel the structure some of the properties um, for, for cheese for example its ability to stretch its ability to melt um, and uh, also the fortification of, of, of these products to um, sort of add some of those nutrients in that just don't exist in, in some of these plant-based foundations. Um, one of the things that came out was the use of uh, carrageenan. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, Robert, is that right? I think so. I've, I've used Irish moss, which is what it's from. It's mm. either carrageenan or carrageenan. So okay. there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, let's switch back and forth and just confuse everyone. Um, so it, it, there's some controversy in that, in that some studies have shown that it's, uh, well, actually, maybe take a step back. So it's used to give some of that texture in, in, uh, that you see in uh, uh, cow milk-based uh, products or dairy-based products in cheese and, and the like. Um, so it's used as an ingredient into plant-based milks to sort of replicate that. Now, um, some studies have shown that it's highly inflammatory, uh, toxic to the digestive tract, could be responsible for things like colitis, IBS, rheumatoid arthritis, even colon cancer. But then on the other end, of course, you've got uh, also scientists that are also well-respected who said, that's rubbish, none of that's true. Um, it's totally fine to use. Um, so... But all that said, it's sort of like, it's really interesting because you've got this um, product where it's really technically challenging um, to do, where you've got to try to replicate dairy proteins uh, to create that structure. Um, and there's a lot of experimentation, it seems like, to try to get that sort of done. Now, Ina, in your sort of plant-based cooking and, um, and, and your exploration of this world, um, how, how do you sort of look at these ingredients? And I mean, are there days when you're just like, okay, I'm going to try this and it's a total like disappointment because the thing you've spent four hours on is sort of not what you expect. Like, how, how have you gone about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, there are some instances when I've tried a recipe and it just does not have that mouthfeel or the structure that I was looking for that I've used in, that I've been able to achieve with using dairy products. I think when I was baking cookies is a great example. Um, the butter is such a, like I use that a lot to hold the cookie together and to figure out ingredients that keep that structure was challenging. Um, but using some some of these like carrageenan, carrageenan, um, you know, I, I, when I see the responses of some scientists finding, you know, evidence that it's highly inflammatory, some scientists saying that it's completely misleading, that, that that research is misleading, I think that it really has to be off of the personal use. And how does it make you feel? Does it, are you achieving the intended outcome of your cooking with these products? Does it make you feel good? And I think that those kinds of conversations need to be at the forefront rather than, you know, what scientists are saying, because it really is all about your personal response to these, these new products. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I've been doing a bit of digging on carrageenan. It is a hard G. I found that out at least. Um, yeah, I would, I mean, personally, I would be surprised if it was a terrible, um, product for you, given that it essentially is an extract, I guess it, 
Yeah, I, I guess I've used the Irish moss, which is the actual seaweed stuff that carrageenan comes from, whereas like carrageenan sort of is an extract of that, that product. Um, I've used it in situations where um, you might otherwise use agar or gelatin if you were using a non-plant-based um, source. So it'll, it'll sort of um, thicken and gel something. You can make a, uh, I think I made like a passable kind of uh, macadamia oh boy what is the cheese that you use in a um oh i'm just i can't remember anything anyway i made a, some kind of cheese with it and it was all right um uh, but yeah you're going to see products like that used for um creating the texture and the shape of cheese and that kind of thing um i think you're going to see a lot of these sort of additives and things coming out over the next decade as people try to get um plant-based cheeses to mimic the original uh, dairy cheeses. I've had such a sort of mixed experience with plant-based cheeses where I'm not someone who ate a lot of cheese when I was growing up because of course, you know, I was lactose intolerant. Um, and some of the plant-based cheeses on the market like Daya, which is probably the most widely available, I find to be like a chemical sludge that I just I just, I can't eat that. It's horrible. Um, and it smells, it smells really plasticky to me. So I've been to places where people will proudly say that they are serving this vegan cheese and then it arrives and it's like a chemical spill on a pizza or something, you know? Whoa. And so, yeah, there's some bad stuff out there in plant-based world and, <laughs> Uh, we got to watch out for that. I think it's going to, and you're already seeing this right in the supermarket where you'll have a processed food that labels itself as plant-based, um, which to be honest is also not, not a certainty that it'll, it will have no dairy products even in it. Like sometimes there's stuff that labeled as plant-based because it, there's no meat, but actually then has eggs in it or something, which drives people like me crazy because you, can't trust a label anymore but apart from that you're finding that these products are more and more processed as is the what were you saying the entropy of the industrialized food system it's just got his claws into it again yeah that's sort of happening and so like yeah again it's this sort of contrast between making things for home use by yourself like your cookies designer versus how to make this work in an industrial context and it's it's a different thing and it's sort of a scary thing and um yeah, maybe it's an, sometimes an excuse for people to make yet more processed foods. Very confusing environment now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we've talked about Miyoko's before on this podcast, but if you go to their website, miyoko's.com, um, and they call themselves Miyoko's Creamery now, which I think is also quite interesting from a just from a positioning perspective. Um there's a page on their website that talks about the creamery of tomorrow. And I, I think they've done a really good job with their uh, messaging on this site. So, you know, they've kind of created a few segments here where they talk about the tradition, where tradition meets science, which is really the bridge here, right? I mean, that's the cultural sort of problem that we're facing where, you know, the, your, your milk purists are going to be like, well, this is what we've always done. And then you've got all of this advancement that's being being pushed by uh, massive innovation around engineering. So tradition meets science. And I think they're really clever to kind of take that head on. Um, 
and to sort of begin to use words that sort of link the two, calling themselves a creamery, um, I think was was actually very really quite clever. Um, and sort of the next piece where they're untapping next generation's milks hidden in the plant kingdom um, to really talk about some of the advancements there and then the evolving ancient art of fermentation. I'd, I'd love for us to spend some time around fermentation as well, because it does sound like a lot of this next um, uh, arm, one of the arms of this next plant-based movement and, and the industry is really centered around fermentation, which been which has been around in, in human history for thousands of years. But it's sort of this, what's this, you know, next level of, of engineering and, and innovation that's around there to be able to provide us with the food. Um, and then also they talk about uh, uh, delivering world-class Epicurean taste and performance, which is obviously important when it comes to consumers. But it's sort of like, okay, if you take yourself from, you know, the previous era of plant-based food products that are trying to substitute for meat products or, or animal-based products and looking at, okay, this is a little bit different. This begins to feel and seem a little bit different where you're taking stuff from a lab, um, but also kind of packaging in a way that uh, accounts for everything that human beings value in our food, in our society, in our culture, in our tradition. Um, and I, I just think they're doing a really good job of, of, of picking up on some of those pieces and trying to frame the conversation in that way. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great piece of marketing to start with. Uh, I agree. The word creamery, it's a lovely word, isn't it? Creamery. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it evokes an image of an artisanal sort of place in a neighborhood where you've got some cheeses, rounds of cheese fermenting in the back or aging in the back. You've got some lovely person with an apron on who welcomes you, um, you know, and I think there's also this, the logo actually is also great. It's got this sort of heritage and you've got the word mm -hmm. Miyoko, which is obviously a Japanese word with a sort of Western word creamery. And then you've got a little heart where the apostrophe is. And of course it's Sonoma, California, which evokes these like lovely images of wine country and, um, you know, sparkling sunlight and that kind of thing. It's a really, really nice package. And then I think the new piece for them is talking about innovation and talking about, you know, someone called them the Tesla of the uh, food world or something like that. And, and that's just like, you know, what better positioning to have. Um, and, and actually, I think like, yeah, they, they, they're sort of doing the right things. I mean, I, I've had quite a number of their products and I thought they're pretty good. I've certainly heard, um, I think it was Superiority Burger here in um, New York City, which you should go to if you haven't. Um, they, they use our products from Miyoko's, I think, and they've said things like, well, we've tried to make our own plant-based cheeses and they're really accomplished chefs. Uh, but they've said, well, look, Miyoko's ends up being better. And so that's what we use. And that's pretty high accolade. I think that um, the thing I'm seeing as well is that this concept of using fermentation, but also getting to be more um, scientific, which is a sort of shitty word, but more scientific about how they do a process like fermentation, how they understand what's going on. Um, I think that's going to unlock the sort of next level of innovation here where 
you're sort of trying to understand, okay, what exact bacteria are we using in this fermentation process? What acids and what other compounds are getting produced through fermentation? Can we identify what those compounds are? Can we recreate them in other ways so that you can get some of the same flavor notes that you would otherwise get from a dairy cheese in a plant-based alternative without having to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, there's a company, I can't remember the name. Maybe we can find out in the show notes. There's a company that's been through Y Combinator recently, which has been looking specifically about this problem of like, how do we identify um, these specific compounds and uh, in interesting foods, such as like Koji, you know, the fermentation, uh, the fermented, um, it's, fer- it's a ferment that happens on top of rice, mm-hmm. uh, cultured bacteria, um, which is responsible for a lot of sort of umami flavors, for instance. Uh, I know that they've identified some things to do with that. Um, I'm reaching the limits of my knowledge on this very rapidly, but but all this kind of innovation I think is is really great. And I, I think Miyoko's has really positioned himself really nicely to have this kind of traditional feel with an innovative side. Um, and that's just, that's a winner. So, you know, maybe they're the next IPO in in like, I don't know, four or five years time. I'd be more excited about them IPOing than Oatly personally, but that's just Rob's opinion. So Ina, what do you think? Um, I think the innovation and the creativity is really great to see. I think this legal battle of Miyoko calling their butter butter. And I think this is hilarious that someone out there said, you can't call it butter because it doesn't contain animal products. And it's just, you know, like we're now we're redefining what butter is and we're going to now redefine what sausage is. And then like, you know, this is going to go into plant-based meats as well. So I think this is actually hilarious that someone was mad that you can't call it butter, but I'm glad that they won that battle. Well, this is happening everywhere. I mean, like, you know, in France, I think it was, it went the other way that certain products are not allowed to be called um, butter and cheese and milk. And so you're going to see this go back and forth for years and years and years. I like maybe I wouldn't be surprised if in 15 years, you're still seeing stuff like this. Well, that's someone being the state of California, which is sort of like, okay, I suppose on the one hand, you could make the argument that, um, you know, the state sort of wants to regulate against false advertising, false claims by businesses and those types of things. But then on the other end of the argument, you sort of want to say, okay, well, who's who's pushing you to do this because it's not like we're introducing you know some toxic spill off of this into the environment it's like it's it's a product that replicates another product um and so why are you bringing this to to suit yeah and apparently if i'm reading this right the sponsors of this were Karen Ross from the California Department of Food and Agriculture and Stephen Beam, who's the chief of milk and dairy food safety of the state of California. Um, you guys can keep talking. I'm going to look into Stephen Beam and see if he's got any, <laughs> any mob ties with the dairy industry. <laughs> oh, that big dairy, that big cow. Um, okay. So, so I think that's one to watch. I think that's really interesting. There's a lot there. Um, we're running a little short on time. So, you know, the, the other one there was yogurt, um, uh, where it's apparently the second most challenging uh, to do, um, I guess, engineering wise. So 
there was another company called Macadamia, Milkadamia, sorry. And uh, they made the news recently because they're coming out with this campaign that they're Milkman 2.0. Um, that was an interesting one. I don't think we see a lot of Macadamia milk uh, on the shelves at the moment. Um, but they were actually a company that started in Australia and they outgrew their their farms in Australia and now they source globally. And uh, um, But they're doing direct-to-consumer um, macadamia milk and, and other products, which uh, seems like a new entrant. Um, so, you know, we're seeing that evolve, right? We're seeing a lot of new companies come into the space um, and some new, uh, new, new products. And I think that's great. I think, you know, that's going to be really interesting. Um, question though, uh, what's the sustainability? How should we think about the sustainability of some of these, uh, some of these plant-based products? let's say macadamia versus cashew or oats yeah well we looked into this a little bit it's it's funny because the macadamia uh, milk is obviously as you're saying it's not it's a brand new entrant really or not brand new but it's just not as widely used as almond cashew oat milk etc um having looked into it the um water use of macadamia farming um it's not as bad as almonds but it's kind of getting up there i think the statistics we were looking at was like sixteen thousand liter um liters of water per kilogram of almond uh versus about nine thousand kilograms uh, nine thousand liters of water per kilogram of macadamia whereas oat you're looking at about two and a half thousand um liters of water for a kilogram of oats so um those are the numbers i have and i'm sticking with them but it, it does it does imply that macadamia is sort of halfway between the two in terms of sustainability the other big factor though of course is like where are those products grown and of course one of the problems with almonds is that predominantly in the u.s they're grown in california which is one of the most drought prone environments and so you kind of got a double trouble um there whereas in australia for instance where a lot of macadamias are grown uh, they don't tend to be grown in the um really drought prone regions although you know overall nationally australia water security is becoming just more and more and more of an issue so i wouldn't be surprised if in 10 15 20 years like macadamia is coming under scrutiny again um so we'll see but it's you know it's awesome to have it as an alternative certainly i as a consumer consider macadamias to be an expensive luxury um and so it's i'm curious to see how the pricing on this will shake out long term for a macadamia milk i i kind of doubt that it's going to reach um the same adoption as oat milk but just because of the economics um of, of producing the things it tends to be quite expensive yeah those um luxurious hawaiian macadamia chocolates Oh man, that brings me back. Anyway, okay. Sorry, Anna, did you? Uh... I was, I was, yeah. Those are so good. Those are very yeah. luxurious. Always a special treat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk about a treat. Um. So, so last story. Um, the uh, uh, it, there was a incubator that was announced. So it was a business and product incubator out of Spain. Um, that touts itself as the world's first cell-based alternative dairy milkubator program launches. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of a typical incubator program where, you know, you bring in a cohort of uh, entrepreneurs and others, um, and, you know, you go through the process of uh, um, developing product and business. 
through their incubator. Now, what's interesting here to me is um, the people behind it are Pascual Innoventures, which is the innovation arm of Spanish dairy giant uh, Calidad Pascual. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got dairy industry saying, you know, screw this, we're milk, you know, we've been around, you're going to need milk for forever. And then you've got, on the other hand, a large uh, dairy company um, that's saying, all right, we see that's this coming, let's try to get ahead of it. Um, so, you know, I think that that one's kind of interesting there. I know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I used to work with incubators in the healthcare industry, and it's always just interesting. And, you know, it's great to see startups, you know, have the support um, to get their company started and, you know, for them to be able to connect with each other and explore this new world together. Um, it could be valuable in the future. And, you know, I'm excited to see what comes out of this. It is, I, I love that the, you know, the dairy giant is, you know, starting this. I was on a panel with Tyson Foods um, a couple months back and they were doing the same thing with plant-based meat alternatives. It's like, we have a role to play and we're gonna take some part um, in responsibility. We don't have the expertise yet, but we know that expertise could be out there somewhere in the world. So let's invite them in and let's support them. Yeah, it's a, it's a balance, isn't it? For these companies between trying to defeat people in court for using the name like dairy or, or um, butter or things like that. And then also supporting companies through an accelerator or incubator program. Um, I, I guess, you know, for shareholders in companies that are not starting to do incubator programs like this and are not starting to invest in plant-based milks or, um, you know, new alternatives, I would be worried, you know, because it, it's just a sign that um, the traditional markets are shrinking and, the companies that do not invest in new technologies will be stranded. And I think they'll, they'll fight, you know, through legal battles, they'll fight through campaigns in the media, but ultimately they will, they will lose a lot of market share. And so I think it's essential that companies do this. Are they doing enough? Is this a little bit too late? Hmm, who knows? Maybe, you know, uh, I would have like the smartest time to plant a tree, of course, is 25 years ago. Um, and the second best time is today, right? Um, so at least they're doing this. But I think that you've already seen, obviously, companies like Oatly reach a massive size without having to go through any kind of incubator program. They just kind of did it. And so um, curious to see what comes out of things like this. But it's obviously a smart thing to do. And I'm, I'm happy to see it um, and excited to see what comes out of it. Yeah. We're, we're up against time. But uh, before we hand it back to Ina to close this out, I just want to say, Jimmy Chin, you're still the man for me. I, I love your work. Um, I, I think you're awesome. Your Instagram's fantastic. Some of the stuff you do is a bit crazy, but you know, I'm glad you're doing it. So I, it's, a, it's disappointing that Jimmy had to wait until the end of this episode to hear this, you know? I, I imagine him hanging on one of those sort of, uh, what do you call it when they're hanging off the side of a mountain face and like sleeping in a, in a um, sleeping bag, hanging off the mountain ledge? Well, anyway, he's in that situation. He's listening to this podcast. And then he's like, he's been upset the whole time. But finally, with Michael's words, he is now reassured and he can sleep easy, even though there's a hundred mile an hour wind sort of whistling past him. Uh, in his in his precarious sleeping arrangement, you know. That's why you always stay to the end, man. <laughs> I know, right? What's uh, who next week are we going to reveal that we're still fans of? You know, that's the that's the question. This one was I for know. you, Jimmy. <laughs> this one's for you, Jimmy. 
It's for you. Well, thank you so much for listening into the Farm One podcast. We have lots of exciting podcast guests and episodes coming up that will leave you being more thoughtful about your food. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at our website, farm.one, and you'll get an email each time there's a new episode. Thank you so much for joining in and see you next time. <laughs>